0: Welcome to USA football's coach and coordinator podcast, where top football coaches from around the country share their stories, philosophies, concepts, and strategies to help you get better on and off the field. Now, here's your host, Keith Grabowski.
1: Hey coaches, before we get going today, I just wanted to thank you for all you've been doing to support this podcast. And we have an incredible lineup coming up here. We have just about every major college conference represented. We have a ton of FBS coaches, Division II coaches, Division III coaches, some great high school football coaches coming on the podcast to share with you and help you grow professionally during this time. I really appreciate all of you asking your questions on Twitter. Please follow me, at Coach K Grabowski, for our daily updates on our guests and your opportunity to ask questions. We will read them on the show and attribute those to you. Um, So please contribute to the show. As much as you can. I also want to talk to you a little bit about our football development model, which is something we've rolled out here at USA Football. And this is really for you to uh, be able to help your youth football programs develop. It's about a long term athlete development plan, something that comes off of the American development model, which is something that the USOC has put together. The idea is that we're able to teach skills in a progression starting at the youngest ages. We're also looking at the different game types we have, whether that's flag, which is non-contact, limited contact games like padded flag or tackle bar and full contact and the right progressions for contact teaching there as well. Be sure to check out all we do at footballdevelopment.com and check out what we're doing with the FDM, the football development model at usafootball.com backslash FDM.usafootball.com. Welcome to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. I'm very excited to be joined today by retired college football coach, former NFL player, three-time Super Bowl champion, Bill Curry. Coach Curry, it's great to have you here on our podcast.
0: Well, it's great to be with you, Keith. Thank you. Uh, Forgive me if I call you Jim at some point, (laughs) because I had a wonderful teammate that had your same last name, and that's not a common last name, but he happened to be from Illinois, Jim Grabowski, the great Running back uh, that joined us with the Packers.
1: Yeah, I get asked all the time if, if there's any relation to Jim Grabowski, and I said, yeah, probably somewhere there is, but no, not that I'm aware of. But it would be cool if it was. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, just tell him he's your big brother. I mean, you can sort of.
1: <laughs> well, Coach, <laughs> you've had uh, just an incredible journey through football um, as a player, as a coach even after what you've done, you know, with, with that career and being able to share uh, the, the message that this game gives. And, you know, before we get into some of that background and stuff, I, I think it's important we get it out right up front here. Why is football still so important to our country today?
0: Well, there are certain values that uh, in our best times in this great country – uh, we've lived out those values terribly imperfectly. We've never come close to our potential, but there are times when we've lived out these values in moments of stress and division. And they, they come from, um, really a lot of directions. If you call yourself Christian, then, uh, the, the marching orders are simple. They're not easy, but they're simple. Love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you don't call yourself Christian, there's a set of values that every culture and every religion and every political structure in the world believes in, and that is fairness, honesty, respect, responsibility, and compassion. And when we return to those, and it seems like we're Go in cycles, and we'll have a war, or we'll have some situation like we're dealing with right now with incredible division. And then leaders emerge who uh, emphasize those values. And sometimes it happens through the church or evangelistic efforts. Sometimes it happens through the business world. Sometimes it happens in the political world where people reach across the aisle and show Americans how. To come together, even though we may not agree on everything, and to get a job done. That's what football teams do every single day. Every Friday night during the fall in America, over a million kids play football, high school football. The next day, I don't know how many kids play college football. (laughs) Um, I, I, I haven't studied that, but... Uh, what happens is we huddle, we sit in the stands and we sit with people that are different from us. And when somebody's kid scores a touchdown, we hug. We don't ask what color their skin is or what church they go to. We just hug because our kid just scored a, our team just scored a touchdown. There's nothing like that anywhere
1: else. Coach, we'll get into, uh, the the book you wrote, 10 men you meet in the huddle uh, a little bit later I know uh, for for a lot of kids out there, they don't know what that is because they've never played in a huddle. But we'll talk about that a little bit more. You know, I, as I told you before we got going, I've been able to listen to you on uh, quite a few podcasts, and you know, a lot of the questions revolve around some of the just legendary names that you've been associated with, guys like Bobby Dodd, Vince Lombardi, Don Shula, Johnny Unitas, Bart Starr. But what I really wanted to dig into in this is is how really all that came together to, you know, certainly there's those influences, but, you know, I think you would agree at the end of the day, when we step into that role, you know, the first time you became the head coach in 1980 at Georgia Tech, you could not be Vince Lombardi, you could not be Don Sewell, you could not be Bobby Dodd, you had to be Bill Curry, so... What was that process like for you? Taking some incredible things you've learned, some incredible winners you had been around, and then sculpting sculpting it into something that you were going to be able to build this program upon.
0: Well, it was complicated, and you've uh, you've you hit on a very good question and uh, an important question. Um, the worst possible preparation to be a college head coach is to play in the NFL a long time. and and I'm dead serious about this. Uh, I've I've had a 10-year career in the NFL, and I learned one thing, how to survive as an offensive center. It took every fiber of my being to learn how to do my job, which was to hike the ball and be run over slowly (laughs) by Joe Green or Deacon Jones or Merlin Olson. Um, I thought, and here's, here's the more dangerous part, is because I played for Lombardi and Shula, and because I played for Coach Dodd, at Georgia Tech, I thought I knew a lot of football by osmosis. No, baloney. I didn't. I didn't understand structuring a staff. I didn't understand uh, community relations. I didn't. I mean, although I had been active in community relations, I didn't understand organization. I didn't understand recruiting. I didn't understand the entire uh, the whole vast panoply of putting the whole football team together. I had to learn on the job and I'm married to a brilliant, wonderful woman um, who came home from one of our tech games and um, informed me. She said, you're not being yourself. And I said, what do you mean? We'd had another embarrassing loss. She said, you're trying to act like coach Dodd. You're, You're trying to walk like coach Dodd and Look like Coach died and be studious like Coach died. And I hit the ceiling. When your wife tells you something and you hit the ceiling, you know what that means every single time? You know what that means? With,
1: with that, man, Coach. that means she's <laughs> right.
0: That means she's right. <laughs> that means she's dead on. So um, I decided I was going to have to be myself, like you suggested. And with all my flaws and all my weaknesses, confess to the team but I got a lot to learn here and you guys are going to learn it with me and we're going to build a program and we're going to love each other. That's, that's item number one. We're going to build relationships. We're going to get along. There will be no racism. There'll be no sexism. There'll be nothing said disrespectful to a female ever. There'll be no female disrespectfully touched ever. Uh, the, The campus will be treated with reverence The professors will be respected and we'll do our work and you'll sit on the front row and take notes and act like you're interested in the course, whether you are or not. Otherwise, Georgia Tech will eat you up alive. So we started there and uh, we built a program based on those things and sticking together and bringing people who um, appreciated those values. And uh, I'm happy to say that that it worked, but it certainly wasn't because of me. It was because Georgia Tech is such a great place and offers so much, and uh, gave us an opportunity to grow into the job.
1: Coach, in, in that aspect of taking over the program at Georgia Tech, and you know, certainly a big part of that is uh, of, of being able to step in for a legend. As you do have to be yourself, as as your wife pointed out. But you know, for those coaches who are in that situation. You're taking over somebody who's done an incredible job there before them call them a legend or not um you know yet you, you have big shoes to fill uh, what's your recommendation for somebody stepping into that kind of situation
0: well it's eerie the way my life has been it's, it's all i've ever done is to follow legends um when I got to Georgia Tech, everybody that played center had been an All-American for the last umpteen years. I'm, I'm serious, for like 20 years prior to that. Uh, so if you weren't an All-American and you played center, then you had, you had failed. Uh, so, I mean, the, the standards were set extremely high. And then when I became a, a line coach uh, with the Green Bay Packers, I was following a guy named Ray Witeka that had helped develop those great lines back in the 60s. And had been an All-Pro center himself. Um, and then when I went back to Tech as the head coach, obviously I was followed. I didn't directly follow Coach Dodd, but he was was and still is remembered as the legend uh, of the coaches that coached at Tech, and with good reason because what he emphasized was academics and integrity. Uh, he was <laughs> dead serious about that. And I got stories about that too, because I tried him out and cut a class one time. It's the worst mistake mm-hmm. of my life. <laughs> he made me pay. Um, but um, following the legend, uh, then I go to Alabama, and guess what? Bear Bryant. And, um, and then to Kentucky, and Bear Bryant had been there. Uh, when I played center for the Green Bay Packers in 1966, the previous sitter had been Jim Ringo, who's a Hall of Famer. So um, I had to make a decision early, knowing that I wasn't going to be a Hall of Famer uh, just because of my size and speed. And I decided that I might not ever be Jim Ringo, but I was definitely going to be the best Bill Curry I could be. And God gave me the, that idea, the idea to be the very best I could be. And to take all the great ideas from Jim Ringo and Bart Starr and Coach Dodd and uh, Coach Bryant, who befriended me as well before his death, take all their ideas, build on their traditions, always honor their memories, but to be sure that I was being myself and to get the very best there is in Bill Curry. And it took me a long time to figure out that that's all I could do. And that is, that's all any of us can do. When you're given the best you can, organizationally and relationship-wise and in terms of your personal faith and the way that's lived out in front of your team and your players and your students, those students in the hall are just as important as your star linebacker. They are watching you. They want to be like you. Uh, you, can make a, you can make an impact.
1: Coach, you mentioned a story about skipping a class and I know when I heard you tell that story it really had to do I think it started with the idea that coach Dodd wasn't there to run anybody off that he was he was gonna you know those guys at, at Georgia Tech were, were there for a reason and he was there to to help build them up but certainly the the skipping the class thing was something that uh didn't go over very well tell us about that story and tell us tell us about coach dodd's philosophy because i think that's that's very important i've seen it too many times especially i think at the younger level when i look at you know youth coaches maybe saying some things on social media we got to find a way to weed out the you know the ones who aren't tough enough and you know i I just don't think our our sport necessarily uh, needs that we need to build people up so so tell us about that story
0: Well, I'll tell you that one and then remind me to tell you about the ones who aren't tough enough and tell them they're not good enough. Uh, I've I, I got a story, a personal story about that too. But I was 17 years old and I went to Georgia Tech um, for the wrong reasons. Uh, there was a beautiful girl that was going to go to Agnes Scott College, which is right close by. And uh, that's not a good reason to go to the, one of the toughest schools in the world when you're not academically qualified. And also, they put me in a a section of chemistry at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I thought that was not fair. And being 17, my reasoning was the rest would be better than sitting there listening to a language that I did not recognize. So I didn't go, and Coach Dodd had very carefully said, Now, man, if you're not a good football player, that's not your fault. That's my fault, because I invited you here. Schools in the Southeastern Conference at that time were signing 60 kids a year and running off half of them uh, at training camp. And it was, they were like pro tryout camps. That's what they were. And Coach Dodd refused to do that. He would say this then, and I, this this riveted with all of us. He'd say, I am 50-something years old, whatever he was, and I do not have a diploma from the University of Tennessee. My record as a quarterback at UT is 27-1. and 1 But I do not have a diploma. That is not going to happen to you. Now, you go to class, and you behave yourself, and we're going to keep you here whether you're a good football player or not. But we're going to teach you how to play football as well. So uh, you make sure you do exactly what I tell you. Go to every single class, behave yourself, sit on the front row. And I thought, you know, there are 100 kids in the class, and there's no way he can catch me. So I don't, I I skipped and I slept in and the next day, my name was on the bulletin board, (laughs) Bill Curry report to Grant field 530 AM Wednesday morning in your running gear. They ran me up and down the West stands until I was gagging and sobbing. And at some point I decided that chemistry at eight o'clock in the morning was a wonderful thing. And that's a cute little story, but, um, My football coach loved me too much to allow me to self-destruct when I could not see my own potential. The only reason I graduated from one of the toughest schools in the world is because of my football coach and because of his love and compassion for me. Um, I will never forget, and I owe him and that great institution uh, really everything, because in in my case, not only did he – give me an opportunity to compete with students that were better prepared than me, but he gave me a mission in life because I've spent my life trying to do the things that he did for us, for other young men. And it's, uh, it's been very, very gratifying.
1: It's a great story. appreciate you sharing that. And you mentioned, you know, the idea of weeding out the tough ones. And I think, you know, today more than ever, I think if, if you have the courage to go step out on a football field with our, you know, instant gratification in, in our society. Um, so that part of it, as well as, you know, being able to hear the onslaught of media, you know, maybe not as well informed as they need to be telling you, you know, how dangerous football is, et cetera. I think by definition, no matter what age you are, you step on a field, that, that's a sign that you're tough and you're ready to do something with this. I don't believe we have to necessarily create drills or do anything extra to to, to prove toughness, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that.
0: Yeah, I'd like for all the coaches to listen carefully. I was not tough. I did not like football. I did not want to go out for football. I sort of went out grudgingly because at College Park, Georgia, you couldn't get a date if you weren't on the football team. I decided I was going to quit, uh, but I had a problem with quitting because my father lived at our house. You didn't quit anything at Major W.A. Curry's house. So I was stuck. He said, look, I didn't make you go out there. I, I didn't tell you to go out for football but you're out there now you're not going to let your teammates down and you're not ever going to let your teammates down so I was stuck and I had to stay then I got to Georgia Tech and in my third year I had never started a game and I had played almost none so I went to one of the assistant coaches and um, I said coach uh, what do I got to do to get on the field he said well, no, it doesn't matter. You you try hard and you just don't move your feet well enough and you're not good enough and you're never going to play. I was 20 years old. I was married. I could barely walk out of his office because I really wanted to play, but I had not learned how to give all I had. I guarantee you there was some coaches that sat in those meetings and said, he, he said, you know what? And you and I both know some of the words right. that are used to describe young people. Uh, we, we don't need him, um, and he keep him on the scout team or whatever. The next day, another coach named John Robert Bell came to my locker. He said, Bill, I know you can play. Come on, buddy, let's go work on it. Unless you and me work a little extra. He worked with me that spring. He worked with me all summer, and I played 12 more years, four world title games, two Pro Bowls. And who do you think I was thinking about when I had the privilege of doing those things? Without that great Coach Bell, it would have never happened. Don't give up on any of them, ever.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more in we all have those stories as coaches. We can all think of that kid who maybe someone had given up on, maybe somebody else on the coaching staff, or there was that doubt he could do it, but you just feel it and you stick with them. And, you know, those, those kids remember it forever, but it, it, it's life-changing for them too. And, um, you know, you think about just the, the effect of, what that kid could learn having stayed with it, what you learned having stayed with it, what you became and now what you're able to share with the world.
0: Yeah. And the, and the John Robert Bells of this world, I don't know. Then the other coach was not a bad guy. He was just, he was doing his job. Uh, That's what he thought. He thought he was just leveling with me. And, um, I'm sure he felt he owed the truth to me, but uh, coach Bell saw it another way. And, uh, for whatever it's worth, he went on to win a national championship at uh, at the one AA level. What was then one AA at uh, at East Tennessee. In fact, they sacked Terry Bradshaw ten times in the title game. <laughs> I I remind Terry that when I get to see him, he did he didn't enjoy that. <clears throat> John Robert Bell is a name that everybody should think about. Everybody that can hear this. Remember John Robert Bell and see if you can be like him.
1: Well, coach, um, flipping gears back to a little bit about your coaching and your philosophy. You know, As we mentioned, you, you found a way to be you. Uh, but what was that philosophy that you carried forward uh, as a coach? The things you felt like this is the most important to what I do. This is what I believe in. You know, you're going to have coaches who have their own styles and do things differently on your coaching staff, but at the core, this is what we're about. What were those things?
0: Well, you're correct. A lot of the uh, players today don't get in a huddle, so it's not so much the 10 men you meet in the huddle as it is the 10 men you meet in a locker room, because we still go to locker rooms and we still dress with one another. And the first thing I noticed about football was the equipment and how much of it we had. And the fact that in the early stages, I didn't even know how to put on the hip pads or the thigh pads. And we had these floppy thigh pads and canvas pants and those old plastic Riddell helmets. And I just barely missed the leather helmets, thank goodness. (laughs) Because my son, you asked me, used to ask me, Dad, you ever wear that Newt Rockney? And I said, no, 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 I never wore one of those. Well, I missed them by one year. Those the leather helmets. But um, uh, you can't even get dressed by yourself. To this day, you got to have your buddy to pull your shirt over your, over your shoulder pad to get dressed to go out and play or practice. So um, I might uh, recruit a guy from South Central Los Angeles. And another guy from the hills of uh, Tennessee, and they've been raised totally differently. They've been raised to hate each other by our sit culture. They listen to different kind of music. They speak differently. They dance differently. And they don't like each other. And I can put them together in the locker room. And I've had them come to me and say, Coach, I'm not dressing next to him. And I say, yes, you are. Well, no, you can't do that, coach. Yeah, I can do anything I want to. You can, you can go home or you can dress next to this guy. That's your choice. And what they learn in our brutal, sometimes, tough, yeah, there is danger in our sport. We know that. In and out of that locker room, going in and out with the sweat and the snot and the blood and the tears and the grit, they learn – that the sweat smells the same on everybody. And when I get busted in my mouth, my blood's the same color as yours. And those two guys who thought they hated each other learned to love each other. And it lasts, yes, it, lasts, it works in the fourth quarter because they refuse to let each other down and it lasts the rest of their life. And you see miracles happen and it happens every year in huddles all across this country and in locker rooms all across this country
1: yeah coach you mentioned that uh you know growing up uh, and then you know, coming coming up t- north to Wisconsin to the Green Bay Packers and especially the influence that uh coach Lombardi had on on this part of it that um you know you you grew up in the south things were different back then you know, you were very respectful, as, as you mentioned, uh, your father's, you know, the upbringing and all those kinds of things, but you kind of knew life in a different way, and I think it seems like that was, like, the biggest introduction to this, this whole concept for you, and really that, you know, football changed you in, in the way you saw just people in general.
0: That's right. Um have had played for the great Southern gentleman. I mean, for God's sakes, his name was Robert E. Lee Dodd, Bobby Dodd. Um, And um, I get to Green Bay, and Coach Lombardi is not Southern. (laughs) Um, Your religion, your family, the Green Bay Packers, that's all you'll think of. Oh, I can tell from his accent, he was also a Yankee. So we we didn't like Catholics, and we didn't like Yankees, And we didn't like Italians. And he was all of those things. Oh, and by the way, we didn't like people of color. We were, that's not my parent. My parents did not teach me that, but the culture did. We weren't supposed to like each other and Lombardi's greatest attribute. And he doesn't get credit for this. You don't see this mentioned, but go get the team pictures out. He would not tolerate prejudice. If you could play football, you made that team. So when he got there, there was one African-American player, I think, in 59. When I got there, it was 1965. On a 40-man roster, we had 10 African-American players, and he would have had 40 on the 40-man roster if that had been, if they, if they had been the best players because he didn't care. The rest of the league had quotas, uh, not everybody, but, or there were teams who bragged about having no African-American players. And guess what? Nobody could beat us. Yes, we had great players, Herb Adderley and Willie Wood and Willie Davis and guys like that were Hall of Fame players. But more importantly, because there was no prejudice allowed in any form, everybody in that locker room knew he was respected. Now that didn't mean we walked around grinning at each other and that we liked each other all the time. Uh, there was several, a lot of us, we got in fist fights on the practice field. But when it came to the fourth quarter, the fact that we loved each other and wouldn't let each other down, made uh, they won five titles in seven years. That will never be done again. And Lombardi's greatest gift is often neglected when he's described. And he was serious about his faith. Um, and naturally, I was critical because I was a Southern Protestant, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Southern male. And, you know, we like to talk about how Jesus teaches us to be non-judgmental, and we're the most judgmental bunch of people that ever lived. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm really ashamed of that, but I'd already decided that Lombardi couldn't possibly be a Christian. So I went to Bart Starr, who would speak to rookies, and I said, I don't think Coach Lombardi, I mean, all that profanity and yelling and screaming, religion and family and all that stuff, uh, Bart interrupted me, and it was, Bar Starr was a lesson plan every day. First lesson I learned from him, don't be judgmental, Bill. It's not your job. It's not your place to judge other people's religion. Coach Lombardi isn't perfect, but he's a very devout Catholic. He's very serious about his faith. And in fact, he goes to mass every single morning. Uh, That just stunned me. I said, that's not possible. He said, not only is it possible, that's what he does. But there's one other thing you need to know, Bill. When you've been working for this man about three weeks, you're going to realize this man needs to go to church every day. Well, maybe we all need to go to church every day. But uh, there were all kinds of surprises in those packages of changing from one team to another. And uh, so many of them were good and welcoming. And I thought those African-American guys would, kill me and send me home. And they did just the opposite. I led by Willie Davis, the great defensive captain from Gramlin State. They embraced me. They taught me how to talk. They taught me how to relate. They taught me how to be a teammate, regardless of the color of our skin. And my life was transformed. God used that message in the most powerful way to me.
1: Coach, in, in sticking with uh, that idea of faith, and I have some questions from some of our, our audience, um, but I think this one applies right now. And this is from uh, Coach John Wright, who's the head football coach at Riverside Poly in uh, Southern California. And uh, John's John's actually been on this podcast before, but his question is: What specific ways did your faith lift you up through the rough passage patches in your career, and how did you? Encourage players during those tough times?
0: I don't think I would have survived if God hadn't reached into my heart and dragged me up out of the mire and the mud again and again and again. I I know I wouldn't have survived emotionally from some of the lows because, um, as you will find with, um, people who are highly competitive, um, not only do we love to win, but we really, really hate to lose. And um, my teams uh, didn't win nearly as much as we wanted to. Uh, There are all kinds of excuses for that, but in the sport of football, it's mainly the head coach's fault when you don't. And for me to take that responsibility was almost too much. My father was the greatest competitor I've ever known, he was a um, national Olympic weightlifting champion, and he wouldn't accept anything other than his best or the best of anybody around him. And um, even with the Super Bowl rings, I never felt like I measured up. Um, but he was a godly man, and um, I knew when I was at the bottom of the pit that God would never let me down. And and that I'm 77 years now, old now, and uh, I rely on God every day through Christ to raise me up again in my inadequacy because I am among all, all sinners. I am chief among sinners. And uh, and so he just never left my side. And even though I would try to brush him off or I would have develop terrible habits or treat people the wrong way, um, God would remind me in the quiet of the morning, you need to go apologize. You need to go redeem that situation. You need to go take that kid and take a walk with him or sit him in your office and look him in the eye and uh, tell him he can do it or tell him that it's going to be okay because his mama has cancer or whatever it is that he's going through and uh, stop being a jerk. I mean, it was hard. It was hard with me. And that's the only thing that works with linemen. You probably know that.
1: Definitely. Well, I know, Coach. It's definitely we got to lean on our faith to get through those challenging times, and certainly be grateful for all the blessings heaped upon us. And you know, we talked about you stepping into the shoes of of legends, but you also had the unique experience of starting from nothing and starting the program at Georgia State. And you know, in, in hearing you tell a story, I mean, it was was literally nothing. You, you mentioned in in the first press conference. You guys had to go to the sporting goods store, local sporting goods store to get a football cuz you you really had nothing at all in the program when you started it. So talk to us about the challenges of of starting a football program.
0: <laughs> oh wow. We somebody said we got a press conference at uh, noon or whatever it was. Okay, good. Uh, let's get a football. Well, we don't have a football. <laughs> <laughs> well, run down to Rita McGahee. Well, Rita McGahey closed years ago downtown Atlanta. I grew up in downtown Atlanta. My father ran a sporting goods store, uh, a sporting goods department in a big in a big uh, store years ago. But they're all closed. I mean, we we had to go to the suburbs to get a football to hold up to say, folks, this is a football. Uh, the the old joke about. I can't remember what coach it was supposed to be, held up a football and said, this is a football, am I going too fast for you? But it was almost almost that parody lived out because nobody there had a clue what would be required to put together a football team. So that's where we started and a, a whole bunch of wonderful people and especially the students, the Georgia State students, the students everywhere I've ever been have just been magnificent. But the Georgia State kids made up their mind. They wanted a football team. So they, they voted to raise the athletic fees, the fees that they pay by $85 a semester or something like that. Anyhow, it generated $5 million a year. And that's how we, that gave us the seed money to start that program. So we had to go buy some dirt and build a practice field. We had to find a deserted locker room and re- refurbish it. Um, a friend of mine, who, who Carol White, who uh, I know it's unusual for a female, but she's a place kicking expert and has been teaching great kickers for about the last 30 years. She came out and built us a polyethylene set of goalposts so we could have something to kick through with our kickers. It was unbelievable, and every young person who came to that program literally did so as an act of faith. He believed that we would get it done and we would actually run a team on the field someday. So uh, when I see them now, I mean, I love all my players, all the thousands through the years, but I have a special place in my heart for those guys. And I had this vision, this image of them. Um, The assistants came to me when we started two days, our, our first year, we didn't play games, we just, we just had training camp and a whole season of practice. And they said, uh, the guy said, "Where do we, where do we let them lie down at lunchtime?" I mean, after lunch to rest?" Well, bingo, we hadn't thought of that. So they're lying in the halls while the students are going the, the football players are lying down, resting in the hallways of the classroom buildings <laughs> during classes. It was unbelievable what they endured and virtually every one of them has graduated with a meaningful degree from a great school and the football team is improving virtually every year now. And so, uh, and, and it was no accident, but it, um, it really helps that they got that beautiful stadium. The former Braves stadium is now Georgia States and they have redone that thing and it is gorgeous. So it's a, it's a good story.
1: Coach, when when you think of um, that idea of team, you've been a part of great teams as a player, as a coach. You know, as you, I'm sure, we're out there as a football analyst, uh, watching all these games later and analyzing teams. What what are the things you feel are really common between great teams?
0: Um, I'm going to alter your language just a little bit and say great programs. If you look at Tom Osborne in that Nebraska program, yes, they won a lot of games. Um, Coach Dodd, uh, and there's so many others that we could mention. But what I think of is priorities. And the priorities for a young person uh, really are faith, family, education, football, and fun. And you asked me what is the basis For football programs, I would say any program that's aimed at developing human beings and especially young human beings, they understand power. Here's what comes first. It's your personal faith. Now, I can't tell you what to believe. I'm not going to. In fact, at a public institution, I'm not even allowed to talk about. I'm not allowed to stand up here and quote scripture. That's as it should be. But if you come and ask me, then I'm going to share my faith with you. And many, many, many players did that. Many, many students did that. And then you're allowed to share your faith, whatever that is. Um, And then family. Uh, The families in this country very often are in disarray now. And if they can come to you and talk about what happened, their father left the home or the mama's in trouble, and if, if you can, you can't always do anything to help, but you can listen. And uh, if you if you simply listen, then they know one thing. They, they, they know that you love them. You may not be able to solve their problem, but you love them and they can come back and talk to you again. If they know that, then you got a relationship with them. And not only will they be better human beings for it, but they'll also relate better to their teammates. Um, and then, uh, the academic piece, uh, so many have not been hammered with, uh, proper study habits and you can have people to teach that to them. And we had that everywhere I've ever been. Uh, and mainly because I had pe- poor study habits when I got to Georgia tech, but coach Dodd didn't give us a choice. We were forced to go sit down and tutoring and learn how to study, learn how to take notes. And i found out when you do that, it works. Uh, and, and kids that, that were pathetic when they got there actually end up doing well in school. And then the football team, once we hit the field, that takes our priority. It takes we're going we're gonna give it all our heart, all our soul, and all our energy while we're out there for two hours or whatever it is, 24 periods. And then when we come back off, we're gonna help each other off with our jerseys, and put up with each other, and learn to care about each other and um, and then going about our business. And then the last part, it ought to be fun sometime. Um, I went to a Georgia Tech practice yesterday and Coach Jeff Collins, those guys, I, I just sat there in amazement. He invited me to come to practice. They're dancing in the team meeting room before the team meeting. Well, if, if my teams had done that, I would have made them all run gassers. But they were celebrating the fact they were getting ready to go practice football. And I thought, my gosh, I wish I had thought of that. They loved it. And they practiced with great enthusiasm. I mean, they're going to be much better next year. I can see it right now. And a lot of it's that kind of enthusiasm. So uh, you learn no matter how old you get. But I'd say the basis can and should be some priorities like that.
1: Yeah, it's funny, Coach, you mentioned what, what you would have done to those guys had they done it today. But, you know, what I find – and, um, you know, I do like to uh, collect old coaching books. And behind me here in my office is, you know, there's a, uh, there's a book from Bear, uh, Newt Rockney. Recently, I was able, for years, was looking for a, a copy that wasn't too incredibly expensive of, of Woody Hayes' Hotline of Victory, which is literally in like a comb bound. I mean, somebody put, the, put this thing together on a copier. Uh, but as you read from these coaches who coached, you know, decades ago, uh, there's the stuff that is just timeless, and you could tell this coach, whether it's Bill Curry or Vince Lombardi or Woody Hayes or Bear Bryant, uh, this guy knew this game so much, understood people so much that even though the times are so much different today, he would have found a way to adapt. You know, what are those things you feel are just timeless in coaches that you know you could you could bring Vince back today? And, uh, yeah, he might think it was a little bit crazy that those players were dancing in the locker room, but that guy's going to be able to relate and get the most out of those guys, uh, even if it's now, you know, 50, 60 years later.
0: Well, I had the privilege of, uh, knowing those coaches that you're talking about other than Rockney. And I've read his biography, um, even his childhood biography. Um, And, I mean, they had a few things in common. Their personalities were drastically different. But the thing that struck me about every single one of them is that they accept responsibility. Coach Bryant had this um, very famous – he had a lot of very famous sayings. And I mentioned earlier that he befriended me. And I don't have time. It's a long story, but he was wonderful to me. That's one of the reasons I went to Alabama. And his family basically adopted Carolyn and me when we got there because he had just passed away. But he was famous for saying, if it's bad, I did it. If it's mediocre, we did it. If it's good, you did it. So you give credit when it's good. You take responsibility when it's bad all the time. And that's what he did. I watched him. Uh, we got lucky and beat him one time and it was a fluke, but he, he took responsibility. I watched him. Um, and he was magnanimous when they ran us out of the stadium, which they did the next year. Um, I watched those things. Woody Hayes came to Atlanta to speak to the touchdown club. And lo and behold, I'm the snot nosed Georgia tech coach. My second year, they asked me to pick him up at the airport. Can you imagine? And, um, I drive this, I, I was shaking, uh, driving my car and he was so gracious to me, first of all, and then I introduce him, uh, to the Atlanta touchdown club and he stands up and he says, I would not be standing here. I would not be remembered as a fairly successful coach. If Bobby Dodd hadn't taught me the inside belly series. That's what we did at Ohio State, and when I was a young coach, I came to Georgia Tech, and Bobby Dodd loved me and spent time with me, and I came tonight so I could tell you his hometown uh, how much I appreciate him. Humility, taking responsibility, humility, giving credit where credit is due. I keep Tom Osborne. Tom Osborne is the most humble, wonderful guy, and yet nobody could beat those guys, and He invited me to come out there one time to speak to his FCA banquet, and then he took me in the quarterback meeting, then we sat in the stands together and watched his team practice, and it was like I was was, um, hanging out with the Trinity or something. I know that's sacrilegious, but (laughs) that's what it felt like to me, and he never changed expression. He never changed his tone of voice. Everything was precise and precision, so I'd say take responsibility. Share the credit. Where the, where the credit is due and then be detailed I, all those guys were incredibly detailed um you didn't mention bill walsh but you could have bill walsh uh inviting me to a practice at stanford and um we went to breakfast together and we got to be real good friends i felt like and i'm staying out there at practice taking notes and he walks over and he said bill um I only only have one rule, and I should have told you this, but please don't be standing here writing things down. And I realized that what that would do, if I went and stood next to the O-line and I was standing there making notes, that would would distract the players. Mm -hmm. Oh, Curry's over there writing my name down. What's he he writing? Um, So attention to detail and then focus. And making sure that your practice stays focused, even if you got some dingling <laughs> friend uh, taking notes over here, and just telling to put the paper away. Uh, it was amazing to be in the presence of any of them.
1: Yeah, it's uh, some incredible names. That's another book actually sitting right in front of me here, and I have a question at the end. We'll ask you. That's really based on the title of that book from from Coach Walsh. But um, you know, Coach, looking at uh, today's game you know just uh last month we we uh we have have the super bowl you played in S- super bowl one wasn't actually known as a super bowl at that time you played in the one that really uh, coined that as well super bowl three against joe namath but you know looking at it then and, and seeing what it's grown to can you imagine the just the reach that football has had going from you know a sport that I mean, you mentioned a, a thing in in a story I heard you telling. There wasn't a lot of people necessarily at Super Bowl one, but to now that something is has uh, worldwide prominence, could you ever have imagined it growing that way?
0: Well, I, I was lucky in, in an aberration that uh, affected my career in that my rookie year was 1965, and that was the last year prior to the two leagues playing each other. And so I was on the Packer team that won the, we called it the world championship, but we won the NFL title by beating Cleveland in green Bay. That was the end of the season. We got the championship rings the next year. There was a world title game in the minds of the public. And it was green Bay versus Dallas in Dallas, which we won 34 to 27, a very famous game that and where there was a huge crowd and huge interest. And then we went to play this other league and it was not called super. It was called the NFL versus AFL world championship game with the Kansas city chiefs. And we run out on the floor of the Coliseum in LA with it seats 105,000. It might've been 60,000 people there. And the tickets were eight bucks. I think, um, It was like a family scrimmage until uh, we lined up against Buck Buchanan. (laughs) They were good. Bobby Bell. I mean, they really had it. And they went back and won the Super Bowl a few years later. They were really good. And he gave us fits for the first half. I got injured and had to leave the game. But they were better than anybody thought. And then uh, I was on the expansion list and traded to Baltimore. And had the privilege of playing for Don Shula, and Super Bowl three, uh, we just turned the ball over. Uh, we were 13 and one going into that game, and the only team that had beaten us was Cleveland, and we had just gone to their stadium and beat them 34 to nothing. So uh, the Jets, uh, we knew the Jets were a good team. Nobody was overconfident. We just had turnovers against a, a good team, and. Namath had a great day. Matt Snell had a great day, and um, we got beaten. It became the biggest upset of all time, the worst day in my professional life. I'll put it that way. But we fought our way back two years later and managed to win despite again making mistakes. But to to watch and by the time we went to Super Bowl five, it had already become a huge event. But you got the you got the chronology right by Super Bowl three. Uh, that's when the Official title sort of came out of the league office. I think it was a Pete Roselle thing that, to call it super Bowl and I remember Carolyn and I very wisely decided uh super Bowl. that's a silly name that'll never stick that'll never be a big deal
1: <laughs> well <laughs> it definitely stuck um coach uh a couple more questions here uh from uh some of our uh, listeners. I have a coach uh, who's from Georgia, Carrollton High School in Georgia is an offensive coordinator right now. And uh, his question for you, Coach Cooper, is that, you know, what advice would you give a, a coordinator with aspirations of being a head coach, you know, specifically in being able to just sell himself in, sell in an interview? I mean, you know how hard it is if you haven't had that experience before as a head coach right now to to get that job. So uh, I think he's looking for what advice you, you would have in that situation.
0: Well, if it were me doing the hiring, the interview wouldn't be nearly as important as the video. If your video is so impressive, if, if those offensive linemen are not taking false steps and those wide receivers are running precise routes and they're being, and the ball's being thrown on the break, and the offense is moving up and down the field with precision, then I'm going to look at that and say, good gosh, who designed that offense? Go get that guy. Let let me talk to him. So what you put on video is what sells. And in this day and age, there's a lot of bad things that happen because everything gets videoed. But the good things that happen is that your work goes out. I'll never forget as an ESPN analyst, uh, one of my games uh, his senior year at Boston College was Matt Ryan. And I sat there watching the the tape of, of Matt Ryan, and I was just, good grief. I mean, the guy looks like Unitas and Star now, except he's a foot taller. And, and of course, he's had a great NFL career. Um, so I think putting a product on the field that demands attention is the way to get attention.
1: That's a great answer, and I I agree with you completely. And I think looking at interviews and just thinking the ones I've been in, you know, even recently, um, sometimes we don't do that stuff because we forget and we think, oh, well, I'm not talking to a football person here. But, you know, when you can bring those out and just show show that proof of what you're doing, and I mean, it's not easy to put together – you know, a football play that is executed the right way again and again and again. So if you have that kind of evidence, I, I agree with you 100 uh, percent, show it to them. So uh, thank you for uh, for that.
0: You're going to you're going to get attention. I had a I had a very nervous moment one time when a great high school coach came to see me. Uh, we had uh, Ray Perkins is my teammate, my buddy. He had taken over at Alabama and we had managed to beat them in Atlanta and a, a, a really hard-fought game, and uh, the great Nick Hyder from Valvosta, Georgia is no longer living, but Nick called and said, I want to come up and watch the film. I said, great, come on. So he, he walks in, gets the film, and it was still film at this time. He goes in the next room, and about 20 minutes later, he comes back, puts the film down, and says, well, thank you. I said, what are you doing? He said, I watched it. I said, no, you didn't. You can't watch a film in 15, 20 minutes. He said, I just ran it straight through. I was only looking for one thing. I said, what were you looking for? He said, I looked for how long your men stayed on the ground. Gulp. I hadn't coached that. How'd we do Nick? He said, pretty well. And he walked out. I guarantee you we did better (laughs) after he left. Um, what happens to your guys when they get knocked down? Do they get up? And if they get up, how fast do they get up? And when they get up, do they run to the ball all the way to the ball every time? That's what yep. folks
1: look for. Coach, you took some time to write a book, and I think, you know, for coaches out there, uh, just that process of writing. I know I came to understand the game so much better as as I started writing articles and and books on coaching. Um, you don't have to go out and necessarily say that you're going to publish it, but that whole process of going through and writing things down certain certainly brings clarity to, to all the work you're doing, and you know you you've got the opportunity to reflect back on and really tell those stories. Uh, what inspired you to, to write that book?
0: <laughs> my wife, my <laughs> wife Carolyn, is a scholar, and uh, I mean a real scholar. She's uh, did a wonderful job raising our children. But once the children got school age, she went back to, uh, it Actually, it was Georgia state was one reason we have so much affection for Georgia state. She earned her master's and her PhD and never made a B. And it took her 14 years because she would drive the kids to school and drive downtown. And she only had time to take one class every day, um, three times a week. I and mean, then she'd go back and get the kids. Um, because she wasn't going to, she was going to be a a mom at home when they were at home. Um, And she kept saying, you need to write a book. And then I have a, I had a great friend, God rest his soul. We lost George Plimpton back in the early 2000s. Uh, George and I did a book back in 1977 called One More July. He was a great writer and of epic proportions. He wrote a a bestseller called Paper Lion way back in the 60s. Um, and he and I, long story, I don't have time to tell, but he and I became very fast friends and he and Carolyn ganged up on me and they harassed me until I sat down and started writing. <laughs> it wouldn't happen without without those two wonderful people. But I sort of got pushed into it.
1: So, Coach, for our listeners who haven't read the book, uh, I guess, could you just give them like a, a brief overview of of that book and I guess the, the overall, I think you've talked a lot about it, but that overall theme.
0: The overall theme is uh, much of what we've been talking about here today. Um, But I feel like that God has blessed me by putting the most wonderful people into my life. I mentioned John Robert Bell, of course, my beautiful wife, Our two children, our seven grandchildren, but so many incredible coaches and student athletes and um, just teammates, friends and fans. Um, I've always wanted uh, and I've done a lot of public speaking and I always want to introduce those people like Willie Davis, uh, the defensive captain of the Green Bay Packers, who could have humbled me and rejected me and booted me out. He could have. But he didn't do that. He he embraced me. He loved me, He treated me like a teammate, changed my life forever with reference to um, racial things and that sort of thing. I I wanted people to know about that in in a written form, but I was too lazy to do it, to be blunt. Uh, I have a very short concentration span. My wife, Carolyn, can sit down at a desk for eight hours and never move. And I walk in, she says, bring me a cup of coffee. I say, okay. She doesn't move. I'm good for about 20 minutes, maybe, max. Then I got to get up and go do something and run around. It's hard to write a book when you've got that kind of concentration span. But again, with enough motivation, I want people to know these beautiful souls and these powerful folks that were in the locker room and in the huddle with me. And um, I tried to describe them in in an accurate way. And uh, I didn't, I didn't, uh, Pat Conroy read, read the book for me and and wrote a nice blurb, but uh, he called me and said, you were real nice to your teammates, weren't you? I said, yeah, a bunch of them had to die before I could, if I tried to write everything, they'd kill me. So I I didn't do an expose or anything like that. I just wrote uh, how wonderful it was to line up with those guys and to um, play for those coaches and to uh, have the privilege of being around some of the finest young people ever in our country and having to be a chance to be a part of their lives.
1: We we have a, a question on your book from Brian Cox, who's a high school football coach in Palm coast, Florida, uh, linebacker coach out there. And his question was, would you change any of the, uh, of your 10 men you meet in the huddle or if you could add someone who
0: would that be and why? Well, obviously, there are a lot more than 10 guys in there, and I didn't
1: like the title.
0: Uh, my publisher at the time was ESPN Books, and a great guy named Chris Raymond was running ESPN Books, and we were haggling over what the title was going to be. Um, I wanted to um, – I can't remember the exact quote, but I wanted to use a quote from Goethe, who was a German philosopher. Um Whatever you can dream or do, begin it. Bonus has genius, power, and magic in it. I wanted to, I wanted to call it genius, power, and magic. That's what I wanted to call it mm-hmm. uh, because that's what I think these guys had. <laughs> he and the he and the editor <laughs> called me and said, "Curry, you put that German philosopher on the front of your book, and the people, all the coaches and the football players in America, when they walk into the bookstore." are going to go as far as they can from that book. They ain't going to touch it. So at that time, um, a sports writer in Detroit had written a book called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Mm-hmm. And they got the idea. Well, there are 10 other people in a huddle. And I thought, Mitch Album is his name, I thought that's stealing the idea for Mitchy album, and I don't think that's right. And they said, "Well, we don't care what you think. That's the name." So that's where that's how that happened. So I, I didn't have much to do with that. But there are more than ten in there, and I could write uh, about a hundred, and I may. Um, I've got some friends that are urging me to do another book, and um, I'm trying to work up the gumption to do it.
1: Well, Coach, before uh, I ask the last question here, and, and as I'm sitting here, my Twitter feed came up and. Uh, I don't know this coach other than he follows me. He's uh, Lonnie Judd. And he said, coach Curry's been such a friend and mentored me whenever I needed him. He was there. Tell him coach Lonnie Judd says, thank you. So I wanted to, to make sure I got that, that that, uh, comment across from, from coach.
0: Uh, Lonnie Judd is a beautiful soul that really loves his players and, uh, and deals with all kinds of situations in a way that's going to change young lives forever. And, um, uh, that, that's how we got to be friends. I admire him
1: enormously. So, Coach, my final question for you here, as I mentioned, uh, does uh, it's kind of inspired by the title of Bill Walsh's book, "Finding the Winning Edge," and you've talked about so many incredible things here today. Uh, but if I say, Coach Curry, you know, give me that one thing, uh, whatever it was you did or you believe in that for you really helped your players find the winning edge, uh, both on and off the field?
0: I'm, I'm not sure there's a word for it. Um, I'll describe it this way. Um, it's whatever's in your soul that you're holding back. When I was in uh, ninth grade, Um, there was one guy on our high school football team that was a great player. Everybody admired him. he about 170 pounds, named Kim Gabriels. And um, everybody was scared of him. I mean, he was just lightning. He he had incredible explosive ability, tackling, running with the ball. He came to me one day and he said, Curry, you're not hitting people. And I said, well, I had no intention of hitting people. I wouldn't say that to him, but... I was going to pitch for the Yankees. I didn't really like being out for football, and I was going through the motions. Then he said something that changed my life. He said, you're going to be my tackling partner this year. Oh, my gosh. So I learned to tackle hard because if I hadn't, Kim Gables would have killed me. So we hit each other all year long, fair and square, shoulder pad, head up, all that. But I learned to strike a blow because somebody on my team would not allow me to slop around. And the other thing, the other guy would be John Robert Bell, who saw something in me that I could not see in myself. He came to me. I didn't go to him. He came to me and said, we're going to develop this, and you're going to play. And that's exactly what happened. Every one of us has a chance to do that with some child virtually every day.
1: Well, Coach, uh... You know, Before we go, I want our listeners to, uh, to know about everything you're doing out there now, and uh, BillCurry.net uh, has some great stuff on there. I really like your great trait clips, your short video clips there that you put on there, and uh, we're hoping uh, sometime in the near future we see that there's another book title up there as well, but tell our, our listeners a little bit about what you have for them on your website.
0: Well, they're snippets from um, my speeches, and uh, one of my former players, Pete Welburn, who was a presidential scholar at Georgia Tech and a walk-on player for us, and a great human being, um, just if you think of the best walk-on in the history of the world, and Pete Pete is the guy, Uh, but he's also uh, has been named one of the top 10 young attorneys in America and uh, has a successful law practice and has an office over there which he allows me to use and um, he does the website and so he's taken snippets of things like forgiveness i had a very moving moment with vince lombardi Uh, things like togetherness and i'm i'm at a loss i can't remember the specifics but he's taken the parts of um of my speeches that he thought were the most relevant. And he's put the – I'll tell you the truth, I've never watched them. I probably ought to go look at them. But uh, they are indicative of the the kinds of things we can do for anybody that wants us to come and speak to their group or their Sunday school class or their company or their team or what have you.
1: And for our listeners out there, Coach is active on Twitter. Uh, You could follow him at Coach Bill Curry. Coach, I can't tell you what an honor it's been. I appreciate you taking time to join us on the on our podcast and uh, would welcome you back at any time to talk about whatever you want about. This great game has so many aspects. But, uh, again, thank you for your time and all you do.
0: Well, thank you, Keith, and congratulations on all your success, and I hope you just continue to grow and build. What you're, what you're doing is a real service for I coaches. I appreciate
1: that, Coach. Thank you. Coaches, again, I want to remind you of what we're doing with the football development model. Please push this down to your youth coaches. I think this is a great way for you to get some organization and structure beyond what you've already done. Uh, check it out, all of our, our program development for youth football at fdm.usafootball.com. Again, check out our systems for blocking, tackling, and defeating blocks at footballdevelopment.com. If you register with your email, you get your choice of three free videos. There's some great things in there. I think things that as you get going again, you can get into the summer and maybe make up on some things that you might have lost if you had a spring ball, if you had time here in the spring to work on football. Some great drills for all those phases of contact. If you're enjoying the podcast, please have it over to iTunes or your platform and give us a five-star rate. If you have a minute, write a review. We really appreciate it, and we will read your review on our highlight show that we do at the end of the week. Thanks for listening to USA Football's Coach and Coordinator Podcast. For more resources, visit the Coach Performance Center at usafootball.com.